0: Be in Galatians. We're continuing a section from Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, but specifically we'll look at verses 6 through 10. So we're going to pick up reading now in verse 1 and read the whole context here before we get into the passage. Galatians chapter 2, verse 1. Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. And I went out because of a revelation, and I laid out to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation, lest somehow I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But this was because of the false brothers secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spout our freedom, which we have in Christ Jesus in order to enslave us. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even a moment so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. And then verse six, our text for today, but from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with a gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who worked in Peter unto his apostleship to the circumcised worked in me also unto the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they ask us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, now we pray for your blessings upon your word, God, that you would speak through your word by your spirit, God, that we would have understanding that it would be illuminated and God that then we would obey it. And God, we thank you for the grace, the grace of the gospel, the gospel of grace that Paul proclaimed and that we are to preach and God, may we be faithful never to add to that which you have done. Help us to understand that the work of your son, Jesus Christ, was complete. It is finished, and we have no need, nor could we ever add anything to the work of Christ. And God, we rest this morning in what he has done for us. That is a complete salvation. And Lord, we look ahead to the day that our salvation that has been begun in us will be completed at the revelation of your son at the second coming, God work in us challenge our hearts as a church that we might take this glorious gospel of Christ, this gospel of grace to a lost and dying world. And God speak to that heart that might not know you this morning by the power of your spirit. May they be regenerated for your glory We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The first time Paul picks up a pen was to defend the gospel, the good news of God's grace in Christ. This first defense of the gospel is the epistle to the Galatians, Paul's first epistle. Paul was an apostle sent by God to proclaim the good news of Christ. He was a defender of the gospel. There is a defense and proclamation of the true gospel found throughout his writings. In his 13 epistles, Paul teaches the clarity of the gospel, the accuracy of the gospel, the priority of the gospel. And he makes a defense of the gospel in the book of Romans, the longest of Paul's epistles. He gives a systematic presentation of the Gospel with all the doctrines of the Gospel in logical order in First Corinthians. Paul defends the Gospel against corruption corruption that came by human wisdom. And fleshly thinking. In 2 Corinthians, Paul attacks the heretics that were subverting the gospel. In chapter 5, he gives a clear and precise presentation of the gospel and tells the church that they are indeed ambassadors of Christ to the world. In Ephesians 5, Paul again presents the gospel, showing that the gospel is entirely the work of God and that salvation even on an individual level, is all the work of God. In Philippians, Paul refers to those who corrupt the gospel as dogs, as unclean. But he refers to those who preach the truth as those who have the righteousness of Christ, which is a gift of God, which is imputed through faith. And there Paul again summarizes the very heart of the gospel In the book of Philippians, in Colossians, Paul addresses any attempts to add human elements to the gospel, anything that corrupts its divine simplicity. In First Thessalonians, Paul speaks of the power of the gospel in the believer's life to deliver them from the wrath of God and to in in that that they may obtain an ultimate and a complete salvation and eternal glory. In 2 Corinthians, Paul continues these truths with the good news of the consummation of the gospel at the return of Jesus Christ. And then in 1 and Second Thessalonians, he gives instruction to the elders to safeguard and to faithfully preach the gospel. In Titus, he gives a summary of the gospel like no other, in chapter two, beginning in verse 11, he writes for the gospel or excuse me, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us that denying ungodliness and worldly desires, we should live sensibly Righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself. Here it is specifically who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. And then he writes concerning these truths in verse 15. He says, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. And then in the epistle to the Ephesians. I said that wrong. The epistle to Philemon, a slave owner whose slave had run away. Paul celebrates the relational power of the gospel to bring two people of social classes, different social classes together, two people that had issues between them and to bring them into a relationship. And here Paul gives us a beautiful picture of imputation when he says, please impute Onesimus's sins to my account. What a picture of what Christ has done for us, that our sins were imputed to him. And of course, his righteousness is imputed to us through faith in Christ. Everything Paul wrote was about the gospel. The gospel was the heart of his ministry and his writings. In Romans, he said, I have to preach the gospel. In first Corinthians, he wrote, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Also in 1 Corinthians, he writes, For I have determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. At the end of his life, in his last epistle, he writes in 2 Timothy chapter 4, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. See, Paul's faithfulness to the gospel to the very end. And here in Galatians, Paul makes an irrefutable defense of the gospel as he refutes the false teachers. Those Judaizers. You see, Paul was in a battle for the gospel, the gospel of the grace of God in Christ. Paul defended the gospel, he preached the gospel, he lived the gospel, and he died the gospel. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. He wrote in Romans 1, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the dunamis, the power of God unto salvation to everyone believing, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul was willing even to give his life for the sake of the gospel, to proclaim the good news to the Gentiles. And on numerous occasions, he nearly did, but his greatest enemies were not the Gentiles. They were the Jews, the Pharisees, the Judaizers. There were many Jews who rejected Christ altogether. And some called false brethren, who believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but refused to let go of old covenant practices. They said, yes, Jesus is the promised Messiah, but in order to be saved, you must be circumcised and adhere to the Mosaic covenant. They rejected the gospel of grace alone. And by doing so, they were actually rejecting the savior of the gospel. They were rejecting Christ. They were rejecting his person and his substitutionary work. They were rejecting his sacrifice and his sufficient atonement for sin. They were rejecting salvation by grace alone through faith alone. While they claimed Christ with their words, they rejected him with their doctrine and practice. And this is so true of many today. It's no different, is it? There are some Messianic Jews today, not all, that require adherence to the Mosaic laws, just like the Judaizers of Paul's day. But there are many in Christendom that have added many laws, many rules to the gospel of grace. understand some of these laws are actually biblical teachings, such as baptism. Yet baptism is sometimes preached as a requirement for salvation. It's called baptismal regeneration. But there are other things. Sometimes laws are added and taught in such a way that the hearer understands them as requirements for salvation. And you end up with people trusting their own efforts rather than the finished work of Christ. I've seen people that adhere that have had adhered to all the so-called Christian standards. But they were legalistic at heart. They did not have the evidence of the fruit of the spirit. They rather had a self-righteous attitude. They had confidence in themselves, in their ability to keep certain Christian practices and standards. They believed that they somehow could earn their salvation. Their hearts remained hard. They were indifferent. That's that's the impression that they gave. They had no grace. But these people sometimes are deemed as the spiritual elites in their churches. You see, the issue here in Galatians is that, and listen carefully, sinners do need to be circumcised, but not with a circumcision made with hands, not a circumcision of the flesh. Rather, the sin, the sinner needs a circumcision made without hands a circumcision of the heart by the spirit for believers are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. You see, when God by his spirit circumcises the heart through faith in Christ, when God gives a sinner, a new heart by his grace, we then seek to please God out of gratitude, we love God because He first loved us, we put no confidence in the flesh, we do not seek to add anything to what Christ has done, because our trust is in Him. The true believer boasts in Christ, in Christ alone. That's the heart of a true believer. Why? Because he is our salvation. He is our forgiveness. He is our perfection. And he is our righteousness. There's no need for anything else. We cannot do anything to add to what Christ has done. That's what the Judaizers were doing. And that's what people do today. The moment Christ died on the cross, he said to Telestai, it is finished. It is accomplished. It is complete, but it does not mean this word does not merely mean to bring to an end. Rather, it means to bring to perfection or to its destined goal. Christ truly And perfectly accomplished what was necessary to save wretched sinners like you and I. God's grace is found in Christ and Christ alone and received through faith. This is the gospel that Paul preached. This is the gospel that the apostles preached and that was made apparent. It was the same gospel at the Jerusalem council. See, this is the good news that came by revelation of Jesus Christ for Christ and Christ alone is the good news. And he is sufficient. His person and his work is efficacious for our sins. In the last few weeks, we have seen in Galatians that Paul received nothing from the other apostles as far as the gospel is concerned. The gospel that he preached came by revelation of Jesus Christ. However, after 17 years of ministry, three years in Damascus, 14 years on his first missionary journey, Paul returned this time to Jerusalem with Barnabas, and they brought along with them Titus, where he received commendation from the apostles, specifically from Peter, James, and John. In Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, we Saul, last week, he recounts a revelation that sent him to Jerusalem to meet the apostles at the Jerusalem council, Acts 15. Paul, in a sense, compared notes with these apostles as to the gospel that he preached. He says that even Titus was not forced to be circumcised. They did not give in to the Judaizers. He also notes, and that's exactly what he says in the last part, Verse 5, he also notes that they did not yield to those who spied out their freedom. They together, the apostles and Paul, an apostle, they together remained faithful to the gospel of God's grace. Now I want you to notice in verses 6 through 8, the divine commission. He says in verse 6, But from those but from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I have been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who worked in Peter unto his apostleship to the circumcised worked in me also to the Gentiles. Now let's break it down. So Paul picks up in verse 6 where we left off last week with an interesting statement. He says again, But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Being of high reputation was a reference apparently to Cephas or Peter, James, the half brother of our Lord and John. They were considered by many as chief apostles. But Paul says what they were makes no difference to me. Now, Paul obviously respected the apostles. Otherwise, he wouldn't have sought their commendation. They had to have some degree of importance or God would not have sent him to Jerusalem by a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul's point was that just as the chief apostles, chief apostles were appointed by Jesus Christ, so was he while he had sought their commendation for the purpose of defending his apostleship, his message to the Gentiles, and his message to the Gentiles. Let me say that again. While he sought their commendation for the purpose of defending his apostleship and his message to the Gentiles, he was sent and commissioned by God, not man. And that's the point. So as far as his apostleship, what they were made no difference to him. And he ends this parenthesis with this. God shows no partiality. The reputations of Peter, James, and John did not make their apostleship more legitimate or authoritative than Paul's apostleship. Nor was Paul's, look at it the opposite way, nor was Paul's apostleship less than those apostles'. In 2 Corinthians 11.5, Paul wrote, I consider myself in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles. No, Paul was an apostle sent by God, of God, and from God. He was sent by God like the other apostles, and he had been given the gospel of God's grace in Christ. He was sent and commissioned to preach this gospel. Look at verse seven, but on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. Paul here begins a sentence that reaches its point, really, in verse nine, and we'll get to that later. But in verse seven, Paul is saying that the apostles had added nothing to him, his apostleship, nor his message came from them. No, they came by revelation of Jesus Christ. We saw that earlier. Paul writes, but on the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. Paul's message did not originate from the other apostles, but they, the apostles, the other apostles, the chief apostles, we'll call them, recognize that he, Paul, had been entrusted with the same gospel as Peter was preaching to the Jews. The only difference was their primary audience. Paul to the Gentiles, Peter to the Jews. And you could read about the differences in approach. Same gospel, different approach. Acts 2 with Peter in Acts 17 With Paul, in verse 8, Paul continues his long sentence, giving further clarification. Verse 8, for he who worked in Peter unto his apostleship to the circumcised worked in me also unto the Gentiles. The Greek word for worked is energeo. It means to be at work, to be operative, to produce results, to energize. To empower. He here is the Holy Spirit, who is at work also in us, both to will and to work in ergeo, his good pleasure. Philippians 2 13. But it's the same Spirit that was at work in the apostles to accomplish God's good pleasure in them, to lay the foundation of the Church of Jesus Christ, to proclaim the glorious gospel to the world. So just as the Spirit energized and empowered Peter for his ministry to the Jews, he also energized and empowered Paul for his ministry to the Gentiles. The audience made no difference. It was the same Holy Spirit at work, in energeo. It was the same empowerment. It was the same Spirit, and it was the same gospel. Now notice the apostolic recognition. Verse 9, and recognizing the grace that had been given to me, Paul writing here, James, Cephas, or Peter, and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas, the right hand of fellowship. James, Cephas, and John all recognized the grace, the grace of God that had been given to Paul to energize and empower him by the Spirit. In other words, they perceived the crown and seal of his apostleship in that God had blessed Paul's labors, in that the hand of God was upon him, in that the Spirit of God had spiritually energized and empowered him, in that God through Paul was producing life among the Gentiles through the gospel, even genuine salvation among them. Again, Paul refers to these as those who were Reputed as pillars. Not that they were not chief apostles, at least in one sense, since together with Paul, these four men would write twenty-one of the twenty-seven New Testament books and serve as prominent apostles. Yet Paul used what appears to be sarcasm sarcasm here because the Judaizers At least this is what some believe, and it makes sense to me. The Judaizers likely considered these three apostles as pillars of the church also. Since Peter, James, and John were Jews and were circumcised, the Judaizers may have assumed that they maintained the old covenant practices, whereas they knew that Paul did not. He did not preach it, nor did he practice it. This was certainly not the case What the Judaizers thought they were all united concerning the gospel and its practice. This was the point of the Jerusalem council in Acts 15. They came together in agreement concerning the gospel of God's grace in Christ. And now notice what happens. The three who were called pillars gave to me and Barnabas. The right hand of fellowship, the word fellowship is translated from the Greek word, you know it well, koinonia, communion, fellowship, participation, partnership. So the right hand of fellowship had more, had much more of a meaning than a typical handshake does today. In the Near East, the giving of the right hand was to make a solemn vow of friendship. It was actually a mark of partnership. Eighteenth-century Baptist theologian John Gill wrote concerning the statement, It was a token of a covenant or agreement between them. They took them, Paul and Barnabas, as it were, into partnership with them, the apostles admitted them as apostles in their society and gave them full consent. But what was the purpose of this partnership? He tells us in verse nine B and verse 10. And here we find the apostolic charge. Verse nine B so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only ask us to remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. The apostles had now confirmed that they all had the same gospel. They were united. They were united in preaching the gospel of God's grace through faith, without circumcision, without the works of the law. While Peter, James and John and the other primary ministries Were to the circumcised, the Jews, Paul and Barnabas, their ministry was primarily to the uncircumcised, the Gentiles. Different groups of people, different religious backgrounds, but the very same gospel. But God did not just call apostles to take the gospel, did he? No, he called the church. To take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Did you know that there are tribes of people today that have never heard the name Jesus Christ? Many around the world never heard the name of Christ. They do not have a Bible in their own language. And I challenge you today with the command to take the gospel to the world. It didn't just apply to the apostles, to the disciples. It applies to the church because we see that playing itself out in the New Testament. And this may seem like an overwhelming test. And we can't do it all. But we have to recognize that this is not something that we are to do in our own power. Even the part, the little part that we as a church or you as a person might partake in you are not empowered according to your own strength. You're empowered by the spirit. What did Jesus tell the disciples in acts one eight, but you will receive, there's that word again, dunamis power when the Holy spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the end of the earth. And that's exactly what we see happening In the New Church, the new the New Testament church, and that's what we've been called to do. Something that must I believe it should begin with prayer. We should begin praying for God to accomplish his purposes, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, to proclaim the good news of God's grace in Christ. Jesus said to his disciples in Luke ten, The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. He asked him to pray. And then in the following verses, he sent them out. And I've often said, how can we pray for God to send the gospel around the world, to send missionaries around the world, to send the faithful out? If we're not willing to be the answer to that prayer, may we as a church, be those who go and sins and supports and sacrifices to take the gospel to the world. May we take the light of the gospel to those in darkness. May we faithfully proclaim the grace of God without circumcision, without adherence to Mosaic covenant, without adding anything to it. May we take that gospel to those in bondage. Why would we want to bring more bondage to people than they're already in? The gospel sets people free, free from our sins and free from bondage to trying to appease God. You cannot do it. No one can keep God's law and no one can even live up to the standards that's being put upon them today. In the old Testament, the people of God were to be a light to the nations with the light of God in us by the spirit of God. God, In the new covenant, may we shine the light of the gospel to the world. Those people, the Old Testament saints were to be a light, but we've been called not only to be a light because God's light is in us, but to take that light to the world, to take it to the uttermost parts of the world. We have been called. It is not an option. It is a command. So may we here at Cornerstone Church begin to pray that God would send forth laborers. And may we be willing to be at the answer to that prayer. And may we participate in it with all of our hearts. Verse 10. Only they ask us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. The only request Paul or the apostles made of Paul and Barnabas was that they remember the poor this request is not doctrinal per se. It is practical. Those who have been born of God, those with circumcised hearts, would not only love God, but would love their neighbors as themselves. For the law has been engraved upon our hearts. And that law is fulfilled by loving God and loving our neighbors, ourselves. So caring for the poor was not just practical. It's a spiritual responsibility. Did you, and think of the context here. The Jerusalem church was facing a serious problem of trying to feed the poor and care for their members. Possibly even thousands that had been converted while visiting Jerusalem had remained there. They didn't want to go home. But because they were Christians now, because they named the name of Christ, many would not hire them. We know that. So they had difficulty finding employment. They were suffering. And that's why you see so many of the churches sending money back to to the Jerusalem saints. In the early days of the church, those who had money because of this problem... Those who had money and other possessions shared what they had with all as anyone might have need, Acts 2.45. But also during the reign of Roman Emperor, which actually preceded this letter, Roman Emperor Claudius, widespread famine had come, making things even worse, adding another factor. Acts chapter 11, verse 28, the apostles are calling for true believers to care for one another. It should be natural for those with new hearts. John would later write, but whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, closes his heart against him. How does the love of God abide in him? First John 317. James would also later write. That the, a professing believer, if a professing believer says to a brother or sister without clothing and in need of daily food, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet does not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? And then he says in the next verse, even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead. So based upon this request from the apostles and the love of God, Paul throughout his ministry continually encouraged believers who were able to give financial aid to those who were suffering. And he commended those who were generous in doing so many texts that we could look at. Paul explained to the Roman church for if the Gentiles have shared in their Speaking of the Jerusalem saints, spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been called to take the good news of Jesus Christ to a world in darkness. The gospel of grace, apart from the works of the law, to a world in spiritual ignorance. But the gospel must be real in our lives. By the Spirit of God, Through salvation, we're regenerated. We're made alive in Christ. Through faith, the good news brings us into reconciliation with God. By the Spirit, we're empowered to love one another, to serve one another, to sacrifice for one another, to walk in good works. This is the new covenant promise fulfilled in the hearts of those who believe, who trust in Christ. Jesus Christ is the mediator of that new covenant. And those in Christ, those who have been born from above have been transformed by the spirit of God. We are new creations in Christ. May we go and live like it. May we sacrifice and serve one another. So there's really two issues here. Could almost make two sermons out of this very easy, but The importance of a gospel that's all of grace, that's by grace alone, is so crucial for us. It's crucial for the church today. It's crucial for us here at Cornerstone. May we always be faithful. May we always be studying. May we never divert from that gospel of grace. But also, when our hearts are changed, God has changed us. He's given us new life. He's regenerated us. He has engraved his law upon our hearts and our minds. That we might serve him through good works. That we might sacrifice for one another when there's a legitimate need. And that's what we need to do. Paul wrote to those in Ephesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. May God use his word to convict our hearts this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.